Welcome to the podcast. We have Mike Novotny on the program today. He's pastor of The Core, which is in downtown Appleton, beautiful Wisconsin. He's also the spiritual leader and lead speaker for Time of Grace, which is a media ministry that's reaching close to half a million folks a week, engaging people in more than five million times a month across various media platforms. He enjoys time with his family and two daughters, continuing a streak of 37 years of playing organized soccer. Any torn ACLs or anything like that? (laughs) I was just venting of how sore my body is, even though nothing (laughs) big happened the other day. This is ages humbling me very, very quickly. (laughs) Well, you're still a very young man by my standards. Mike got his bachelor's at Martin Luther College. He went on for an MDiv at Wisconsin Lutheran, then a doctor of ministry at Trinity. And he's been about a dozen plus years in ministry and the lead speaker for Time of Grace. And anyway, we're going to jump into this book. I'm not going to read all his bio, but he's got a new book out called What's Big Starts Small. And I told Mike a little story before we started recording about not despising small beginnings. So let's just jump off. Where'd you get the idea? Uh, what provoked you to write? I always like to hear, you know, what provokes writers to put something together because it's it's a labor of love to write something. Yeah, yeah, it really is. This book it was an accident. I love it. So I <laughs> I had intended to write a different book, and I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but I found this ironic that when I actually looked at the context of the passage that was going to become my new book, it did not say what I thought it said. I love it. <laughs> That's good. You're still learning. I wanted to write a book about the importance of being clear and not just being clever. Like when you're teaching, when you're preaching. Now, wait, I just did a big post about be clear, not clever. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. There's there's an 81% chance I maybe just saw that on your Facebook before we started this interview. (laughs) Maybe maybe it was a God thing. So, yeah, anyway... uh, you know, I've just noticed that, that a lot of people will go to church and they really don't get it and they don't have the courage to say it. So I wanted to write a book, you know, as parents, as pastors, as teachers, let's really make sure we're communicating and teaching the word of God in a way that people can get, because it's beautiful when you get it. And so I thought about the little line from the parable, the sower, you know, sometimes Jesus says, seed is sown on this hard path. And when someone doesn't understand it, the devil comes and snatches it up and it doesn't grow and produce anything. And so I thought, oh, perfect, right? Like you can put the seed out there, but if people don't understand it, the devil's going to devour the Bible for breakfast, swoop down from the church rafters. Oh, here's my book. And let me inject, that is a very complicated passage. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So I start looking in context, like, well, what does it mean they don't understand? And then Jesus kind of breaks out into this Isaiah 6 quote about their ever hearing and seeing, but they don't see it. They don't understand it. I thought, oh yeah, the Pharisees weren't just like innocently ignorant. There was some other reason that they didn't understand. And so that kind of dominoed into a whole book about the parable of the sower. And I really found it to be one of the clearest, best explanations for why faith sometimes grows for people who hear the Bible and why sometimes it doesn't. And so that's what this book became, a deep dive into the parable of the sower as told in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke chapter 8. Now, for those of us that hold to eternal security of the believer and assurance of salvation, I always like to differentiate between the point of time faith and faith 
thoughtfulness. Is that fair? Would you would you agree with that? Ooh, yeah. Because that little line that's kind of interesting, huh? Some people believe the word, they spring up with joy, but then it withers. So yeah, as as you probably know, there's a healthy theological debate of yeah. what does that mean? He says believe, not looks like they believe. So yeah, that's how long do we have for this podcast? Well, you wrote the book, brother. (laughs) (laughs) You're the one that's supposed to answer the question. (laughs) Yeah. You know, a lot of, uh, I come from a a Lutheran background and training, and so we talk a lot about law and gospel, you know, that sometimes there's two teachings which seem to be in tension. It's hard that they, seems like they can't coexist, but one teaching is meant for a person in this situation, and another teaching is meant for a person in that situation. You know, so the law of the gospel, the threats, the comforts. So I've always seen that as like a, a threat of the law. Like, hey, just because you have this strong beginning and you love it at first, sometimes instead of just saying, well, I'm eternally secure, there's some beautiful passages about that, that sometimes there's this threat of like, don't worry, but be careful when the word causes trouble and persecution, be careful you don't wither. And what seemed like such great faith, joy in Jesus in the beginning ends up doing nothing in the end. Well, let's take a sidebar then from your comment, because let's because I, I never want to presume anything about our listeners, and so if they're to understand what it means to come to Christ by faith, how would you explain that to them? Yeah, holding on to what has been done instead of holding on to what you do. So faith in. You know, I get to that. I had this conversation actually with a couple in their 80s yesterday, that classic, if today was your day and you're standing before God, why, why am I going to let you in? I would say when the Bible says by not just faith in general, but faith in the work of Christ, Jesus lived the life that God requires. Jesus died to take away my sin. Jesus rose to put God's stamp of approval on it. So yeah, I think of faith in Jesus versus the works that I do. And wow, it was pretty interesting. A couple in their 80s who were like, Really? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I love it. Faith was in being an above average person. So I get to tell them whoever humbles themselves will be exalted because of what Jesus did. So yeah, that's what I mean by by faith. So we're talking about what's big starts small. And in this you say there's six threats Jesus lists in the parable of the sower and the seed. Pride, pain, worry, wealth, want, and not waiting and the corresponding strategies to overcome them. So let's take a stab at a couple of these. You start with pride, as the Lord does. Tripwire, it kind of goes back to the garden, doesn't it? I'll be like God. Yeah, each of those six threats, you know, for people who are new to it, Jesus tells this story. Uh, It's one of the, what, 30 stories, 30 parables he tells in the Gospels? I think, maybe, depending, yeah. Yeah, and if my word count is right, this actually gets more words in the Scriptures than any other. So... It's almost like the Spirit saying, don't miss this. And then he, just in case you you were skimming Matthew, he comes back in Mark and says, don't miss this. And then here it is again in Luke. And if memory serves me, the disciples are more confused about this one than any of them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maybe that's why. He He explains it and we still don't understand it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so true. So, you know, it's just kind of this parable of the garden, just like, you know, seeds are so packed with power. That's kind of where I took the title of the book from. They're so small, but wow, would you ever believe it if you hadn't seen it, that a tomato seed could produce a dozen tomatoes or a little, you know, little seed could produce a giant tree. So God's word has this exponential potential to it. And yet we, we also know that just because you have a seed doesn't mean it's going to turn into something big. You know, in the, the natural world, there's a hot sun, there's a dry summer, 
there's the birds and the squirrels that invade my backyard and, you know, <laughs> chomp up anything I try to get. And so we, we kind of know that the seed has power, but you have to protect the seed if you really want to see something grow. And uh, in this parable, Jesus kind of unpacks that the same way. He says, yeah, yeah, don't minimize the potential of one little podcast, one little passage, one little certain. You don't have to memorize the Old and New Testament to be blessed by the Bible. You know, sometimes a little verse becomes like your anchor, right? Your rock, your life verse that just gives you so many blessings. So I I love that potential of the Word of God. And, Jesus would say, (laughs) and just hearing it, doesn't automatically produce that potential. And so that was kind of the thing for me. Like, I know that about my garden. I know I have to care for it. But sometimes in my spiritual life, I forget it's not just about a morning devotion and it's not just about making it to church every Sunday. Those are those are essential spiritual disciplines. But now what are the things that are going to get in the way between that word producing something big in my heart? And how can Jesus help me kind of anticipate the playbook, maybe of my own flesh or the the seats of the devil in the world so I can overcome those threats with, with God's help and by his grace. So I actually end up producing the fruit, which is the point of it all in the first place. I often talk about the fruit. Uh, when Eve looked at it, it was, she saw it. It was delightful to the eye. It was, um, help me out there. Delightful to the eye. Make one wise. Pleasing for food. Yeah. And then we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the boastful pride of life in the new Testament. And I've kind of bookend that. And then I, maybe oversimplify it, money, sex, and power, that, mm-hmm. you know, these three umbrellas, if you will, are the overlay. I can trace all my sins, Mike, to money, sex, or power. Hmm. And you've listed where Jesus is talking about pride, pain, worry, wealth, want, not waiting. You've given, obviously, some thought to why those, the universal, is it the appeal of the parable that everybody's going to have pride and pain and worry and wealth and want issues and impatience issues? Mm, yeah, good question. I never saw it as like an exhaustive list of... Right. There are only six temptations. If you can overcome them, you're good. <laughs> like the, the devil's pretty good at his job too, so I'm, I'm sure he would adapt. But yeah, maybe those are the, the biggest ones. You know, just start with pride for a second. Jesus says pride is like this hard path the devil loves it. He snatches it up. Nothing happens. And um, my understanding of that in context is, you know, when you really could understand the Bible, but your pride puts up the guard so that your heart is hard and you you don't want understanding. So I think of the Pharisees, right? That was their besetting sin. Um, Jesus, could have, Jesus could have given them a perfect understanding of the Old Testament. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they were hearing yeah. his words, but... Did they have ears to hear it? Did they get out their little scrolls and say, oh, Jesus, please teach us? No, no, no. They came up, you know, with an ancient version of confirmation bias, and they didn't want anything, even from the the Messiah walking among them, if it didn't affirm what they already believed. So, you know, I always think of that. If you walked into—here's my, my diagnostic question. If you walked into church and the pastor said, hey, everyone, thanks for being here. Today, we're going to spend the next 45 minutes talking about blank— is there anything that could end up in that blank that even if the Bible was open, even if the pastor was being biblically faithful, that you would be less than excited about the sermon? You know, if I was saying, hey, everyone, today we're going to talk about how American Christians can honor the governing authorities like the New Testament teaches. <laughs> you know, or... In one sermon, hey, that'd be great. <laughs> great, great news. We got a we got 45 minutes about how best to submit to your husband today. Kids, hey, obey your parents 
get out your pens. We're gonna, you know, there's just stuff that we know, we kind of know it's going to challenge us and change us. It's going to confront us and call us to repentance. And so pride is like just the first, the flesh defense against having to change and repent. So I, I think that's where Jesus starts. The devil loves pride because pride hardens the heart and refuses to receive the seed so that it can grow. We all have these triggers when we're confronted. If uh, you're, you remember when your kids are little, and of course now we have the delight of having grandkids, and it's so fun to watch how they process. And if they're caught or there's a trigger, it's what is this person, how are they figuring out navigation? Because rarely do we say, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I was, you know, I overstepped or I lied. I mean, just, just getting a, a child to say, I didn't tell the truth. It's so hard because our sin nature is, is tough. When you think diagnostically of a church you're serving in, where do you see, and again, we're not coming up with, there's just six, but where do you see pride manifesting itself? And what are the triggers? Is that a clear enough question? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Can I give two answers? That's a pastor thing to do, right? Let, let me, oh, yeah. let well, me just add. Good. Well, there's a couple things. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is super stereotypy, but I think if you're younger, the trigger is the source of truth. You know, we've just been so inundated with your mm. your truth, my truth, how I feel, my opinion, that thus saith the Lord is maybe the most infrequently heard sentence among people under 40. You know, I'm going to start with my heart before I reach for the scriptures. So I think that, just like God laughs yeah. at your opinion. So humble yourself, fall on your face, tremble before his word. I, I think that is the source of pride for younger people. <laughs> I could be wrong. As you get older, I think the idea of unconditional love, even for your enemies, I think you've been through enough. I think you've seen enough junk in the world that, I mean, older Christians I know, well, politics feels like an obvious example where I, I just don't have to be patient or kind. I can be easily angered. I can keep a record of wrongs. I don't have to trust. I don't have to hope. Like none of that applies because these people don't deserve it. So pride manifests itself in a million sure. different ways, but that's, that's where I see it in my church. You talk about pain. Help, help me understand what you're saying. Yeah, here. yeah. Jesus says sometimes you receive. You're really excited about the word. Let's say the Sunday sermon. You receive it with a humble heart, but then on Monday, your closest family and friends are not so excited about what you're hearing, how you're changing. And uh, I think Jesus's quote is, "When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, you know." So hey, I'm surrounded by these Christians. It's pretty easy to say Amen sometimes on Sunday because we're in the majority. But when you go back to your family and maybe you're the only Christian in your family or you're with a group of friends and they definitely have a different worldview, is there that still same joy and love and trust in the word of God? Or does that confidence start to wither? It's good. Um, I, can, I, I learned, I, I studied a lot of stuff about seeds and trees and you know photosynthesis and growth. And I learned that, you know, obviously plants need moisture to survive. So what do they do? How can they make it if it's a really like hot, long summer, and there's not a lot of precipitation coming from above? And the answer is, there's actually moisture beneath the soil, right? So if they've really, if you have deep soil and you have big roots, you're able to tap into a source of, of life-giving moisture that the really shallow plants aren't getting from the skies. So mm -hmm. to me, that was a profound. Like, sometimes you're not going to get the approval of the people in your life, like the shower of their, wow, you're awesome, we're so happy for you. There's just going to be a really dry season where they don't love it. Persecution is going to happen. 
But if you have the kind of faith that reaches down into the profound goodness and love of God, that through Christ you're accepted by him, if, if you can actually believe, wow, the, the God of the universe who, who needs nothing from me, he likes me, um, his face is shining upon me, to quote the old blessing from number six. Like these, what, what does Isaiah 2 verse 22 say? Well, why pay attention to these people who have but a breath in their lungs? Like, okay, okay, so my, my brother doesn't like my new faith. The God of the universe does. Like, oh, I, I can get through his disapproval because I have a greater resource to tap into. I want to jump ahead a little bit uh, because I thought this was poignant. I mean, you talk about, you know, why the book is relevant, which we need to be careful with that term. But, but you know, there's so many things published, Mike. Why one more book? You know, I, I think pastors sometimes are guilty of, you need to read this book, you know, and you read, read that. Yeah. So, and I always want to be careful with that. But the one thing that, that struck me was when you talk about people that feel spiritually immature or stuck, and over the 40-plus years I've been doing this, the number of people, let's say there were 100, 89 of them felt stuck in their spiritual life or their growth or their passion for the Lord or their passion for the lost. So where, where are you going with this? How do you, how do you help? And you even point out the pandemic. We, we had a guest on recently and he made the observation that the fear of the pandemic taught us more about people's faith than anything in our lifetime. And I, I, I was like, that's worth pondering. Because the way people, yeah. you know, wiped down their UPS package and wore gloves and washed their clothes when they came home. And some, we, we had couples in our church that didn't leave their home for a year, literally. And uh, wow. it taught us a wow. lot about people's faith. So anyway, back to my question, immature or stuck, a lot of us wrestle with that. Yeah, so we, we talked about pride. We talked about pain in the parable. The next three things on the list, worries the deceitfulness of wealth and wanting or the desire for other things, Jesus puts in the same kind of soil. And I think it's the answer to your question. You know, Jesus said some soil, apparently it can produce, there's enough sun, there's enough moisture that it can produce green things. But he says what happens is the seed gets choked out so that it doesn't die. He says, I think his phrase is, it does not mature and it does not bear fruit. And I learned more, you know, if people want to buy my book, Thank you. But I'm holding in my hand right now a little pack of tomato seeds. And I, th I think I learned more practically about my faith from the back of a pack of tomato seeds than I did from 190 pages of the book I wrote. <laughs> so get this, uh, you know, on the front of the, of the package are these big tomatoes. So here's, here's what you want to grow. Delicious. Let's make some salsa. On the back are the directions from the expert tomato growers. So if you want the thing on the front, let me tell you how to do it on the back. I never knew this, Michael. Do you know what half the directions on the back of a tomato seed packet are about? I'm going to say soil. I'm going to guess soil. No? Good guess. Not correct. Tell me. The answer is space. Huh. Like how far apart? These seeds are powerful, but they're never going to turn into this big tomato if you pack too many of them into a little hole. And if you have too many rows that are too close together... It, the soil might be right, but if you put too many things in the soil, th this little seed actually needs some space to grow into something big. And so I think about that. How many of us, man, how often do I, I squeeze the Bible in to a really busy life? You know, I'm worried about disappointing people. There's Jesus' word. And the worries of this life choke out my faith. 
Um, the deceitfulness of wealth. I'm I'm first like world American wealthy. So I have all this stuff. I have all this stuff to take care of, and I have all this stuff to insure and to catalog and to polish and to clean. And the desire for other things, not ba- not bad things, right? But maybe I want to check the news every day. I want to stay in touch with friends. I want to be on social media. I want to watch the new Netflix show. I'm a soccer fan, so I want to, you know, watch the World Cup. And all of that stuff put together makes for a very bit. It's not just busy anymore. It's busy, busy, busy. And so a lot of us Christians, we go to church and we do open our Bibles and we put a podcast on double speed while we're doing the laundry slash running slash walking the dog. And we're, <laughs> I, we know that doesn't work in the garden. Like we know that. You have to pull the weeds. You have to give some space if you want it to grow. But I, I'm not sure that I thought enough about that, that we think enough about. If you go to church and the, the sermon is about the gospel or it's about loving your neighbor how much time are you actually going to need to meditate on that? And how much space in your schedule are you going to need to put that into practice? Love it. H- Howard Hendricks is one of my professors that profoundly influenced me. And he, he had the 60-40 rule when it came to reading. Because, you know, in seminary, you read, 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 read. And um, mm-hmm. he had us read a book called uh, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. Yes. And he pushed that over and 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 over. And I have to confess in full disclosure, I didn't read until after seminary. <laughs> he was right. I should have read it before. But one thing I did glean from him was, he said, if you have an hour to read, 60% of the time is reading what you're supposed to read. 40% is interacting with what you've read. And I started the habit of taking detailed notes in the margins back when we only used print of the books and still do that to this day. Because if I don't, I you know, it's like, oh, that was a great point, and it's gone. Yes. And I do think this is lost even more so with this technology because you have a small mm-hmm. screen real estate. You have very truncated information, ergo, it's gone. I can always get it back, but there's no retention. There's no reflection. There's no meditation on it. But let me go back to push you a little bit. Uh, I'm feeling stuck. I'm feeling immature. I wish... At 65, I was less anxious about my faith. I wish at 65 I was more uh, at rest and not worried and concerned about my grandkids or whatever. Help me. I think I'd want to start with just an honest evaluation that, in a sense, we will all feel slightly stuck and immature until we die. (laughs) Sure. I I wish there was some, if I could write the book, that could remove the flesh from you. I would... I think I sell at least five more copies. So, <laughs> and I'd and I'd be buying four of them, right? So, yep. Yeah, we want to be real about that. Um, maybe that's the waiting part that I talk about at the end of the book. Big, the strongest trees didn't grow even in a year or a decade. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the most fruitful years of your life as a Christian are the next ten years ahead of you. Doesn't necessarily mean you did something wrong. It just means. Jesus Christ spent 33 years saving us, living a perfect life. It wasn't just six hours on a cross, you know, the plan of salvation, the promises of the Old Testament. So, there, you know, I think I'd want to adjust the timeline and expectations a bit. That, that's maybe my first answer. And then I would actually have in the book where I force people to do a detailed time study where, okay, where is your struggle? Let's kind of break down how much time are we spending on devices, man, the the Bible and especially the Psalms are like bazookas fired at the castles of worry. 
do we have enough time and space to meditate on those? Or am I, once again, am I squeezing in my psalm before I scroll the, you know, the, the dumpster fire that is modern political news? And who knows? I mean, is that the answer? Is that the, the thorns that are choking out that good anti-worry seed of the scripture? I love it. I love it. When you look across uh, your church, the group you're speaking to, I have this little, and it's pretty hardwired in the way I teach and I've shared this story many times. Our listeners are familiar with it. But when I first started out before computers, I had an eight and a half by 11 with a bell curve that I drew and thumbtacked it to the wall. And I, I put the disenfranchised teenager and then the widow or widower. And then I filled in just a guesstimate of the number, percentage of people with bars, like the married couple with children, uh, the married couple empty nest. And then I wrote adjectives across those folks, like, for example, the disenfranchised teen didn't like youth groups, so they came to the big church. And so I wrote isolated, awkward, insecure, whatever. And then for the single person, you know, I wrote things like, are, you know, are they lonely? Are they want to be single? Are they a little awkward? Whatever. And I, I just put these words across it. And it helped me when I was preparing a sermon, when I looked up, you know, thinking about what I'm writing, going, this is the people I'm speaking to not just mm-hmm. a reflection of who I am, which I think every pastor teacher is guilty of preaching you know, to your own demographic. So when I toss that to you, how do you think some of this parable crosses that spectrum of people? Is that a, does that question mm-hmm. make sense at all? It does, yeah. Yeah, some feel really specific, right? So maybe the, the pain threat is especially threatening to that group of people who are they're the minority Christian in their family and friend circle. Mm -hmm. If you're asking me for like, maybe what's the one threat that touches all of us the most, I would say, you know, for you held up your phone before the desire for other things. I think that's threatening because it's not the desire for wicked things or the desire for bad things. I think there are just so many things (laughs) that can and you don't even know it, right? The, right? It was pretty depressing when Apple updated the iPhone and <laughs> they had that little new screen time feature where you could actually look at how much t- time you were spending on every single application. <laughs> like, no, this. I know the people at Apple keep a lot of their data on me must be wrong because I do not spend that there much time. There you go. There you go. Right? So I think that's it. In the book, I pick four culprits. I say shows, sports, news, and apps are the other things in the modern world that just, they grow bigger than you think. You think you're just a football fan here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. But when you actually add up all the hours of the game and the pregame and the postgame and the draft and the news, like you might be surprised how like cluttered your life gets, how much time that is. Think of the news. I mean, when I was growing up, you'd get a newspaper. And even if you read the whole thing, you'd probably be done after a late breakfast. No more, (laughs) right? People who are really into the news, the desire for that other thing is so is so great. Games come out faster. Apps are released. Shows, my goodness, you used to watch a half hour and then you'd have to wait 167 hours for the next episode. Now you binge it and Netflix will automatically play it for you. So yeah, if you're asking me like, what's the common denominator? I think it doesn't matter how old you are, the other things of this world, even if they're not inherently evil, unless you are very intentional with them, they will take more of your time and energy than you think. There's a cryptic phrase and I, I don't want to overwork it, but where Paul talks about a character named Demas. We know nothing about him, but he says, having loved this present world, 
Mm. He left me. And I, I often wanted to write a book pejoratively called The Way of Demas. <laughs> because the, whatever it was, if we go back to my money, sex, and power, or whatever temptation, the next thing, the maintenance of life, the acquisition of wealth, whatever, it pulled him away from the without question, hardship of Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry was not a cruise line. It was tough traveling. And so I, I'm sure Demas was like, yeah, I don't know, but I'm, I'm speculating and shouldn't do that. But it pulled him away. Mm. Having loved this present world, it pulled him away. And I, I think so many of our Christians, you mentioned Western Christianity, and that's one of my big soapboxes. We don't understand how easy we have it. Hmm. how engorged we are with consumerism, materialism, acquisition, ease of access to things, food, restaurants, convenience, car, driving. I mean, we have no, I mean, we get impatient on the microwave, you know, it takes a minute to warm this up, you know, and I, I think we're intoxicated hmm. that we don't understand some of these things about waiting and being patient Yes, and thoughtful. Yeah, that's... You need the scriptures to recalibrate your sense of timing. G Google will mess that up, not because everything Google does is bad, but because Google will give you a million answers in a millisecond. And seeds don't work that way, and trees don't work that way, and human development doesn't happen that way, and the kingdom of God does not work that way. So if Google has taught you this is the right expectation, you, you're, you're going to have some issues with Jesus. He's not a fast food savior. He's the bread of life, and he takes some time. Now, you have a comment here. Unlike nuns and duns, many church-adjacent Christians want to return to a local body, but they feel stuck. They aren't sure how to re-engage or honestly, even if they want to. And I've made the observation, it's anecdotally, Mike, that people go to church about 1.2 times a month now because affluence it's not, you know they're not involved in a Sunday school that was a real commitment they look forward to that group they're not involved in church as much it's like oh by the way uh, kids sports and opportunities is very different than it was 20 years ago so what do we do the nuns and duns who you know they feel stuck too but they ain't gonna go to the local church mm, yeah Ooh, that's a big nut to crack uh <laughs> Yeah, I think I have a, a colleague in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area who says, you, you could podcast me and you could watch this video on YouTube, but when you go through the hardest thing of your life and they find out that you have cancer at 45, you can't call the guy on YouTube. You are going to desperately want someone to come by your side and pray with you and help you through that valley. And, and that resonated with me. I think people know enough that just having digital connections does not a robust, healthy human make. I think, you know, just the explosion of mental health issues and people who have more time with devices kind of proves that. So if I was going to say something to people, I'd say, number one, whatever church you pick is going to be more of a train wreck than you think. <laughs> we are not taking applications to find the, the best and the brightest and the, the squeaky and cleanest of the community. We are reaching out to the prostitutes and the prodigal sons. So when you, when you walk in, <laughs> yeah, ex expect it to smell like cheap perfume and pride and jealousy and sin. And you're going to be the victim of some of that. So I'd, I'd want to adjust the expectation really fast. And then I would say, and, and if you give it enough time, like a seed that can grow, what you will find in a community of face-to-face -face people who believe in salvation by grace through faith will offer you something that this world simply cannot. 
So I don't know, maybe that's a big pitch for a person who wants instant results, but I, th I think that's the postcard that I'd want to paint for them of a, a better future destination for their faith. It's also occurs to me, just, I mean, as a church observer internally and externally, there are a few churches that do what you just articulated. Hmm. And it's harder and harder to find a church that's a teaching the Bible hmm. be much less a welcoming community. And uh, I, I'm, I'm chagrined and enamored by the churches that community is their byword. But mm. if you go to that church and sort of, you know, I've actually done this. I've visited churches and um, I've kind of put my mental blinders on and not made eye contact and walked, you know, through, looked at literature, walked over, looked where to sit, and no one says a word to me. Now, maybe I look like a, you know, a profile guy that's stalker or something. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I, you know, maybe I, I, I'm off-putting, but on the other side of it, you know, there are churches that are welcoming and, you know, th th that say, you know, Hey, we're glad you're checking this out. What, you know, uh, what's your story? I mean, how can we help you? How can we serve you? Uh, are you involved? You know? And, uh, we, we find that in our church that there's, a, it's always the bell curve. I, I love bell curves. It's always the bell curve. There's people that are yeah, anxious and checking it out and unsure. And there's people that they want to get involved tomorrow. Uh, I met a couple two weeks ago and they wanted to be in a small group that day. <laughs> I said, yeah. I yeah, said, why so don't true. you guys visit us for two months before you do that? And they were looking <laughs> at me like, are you crazy? And I went, no, I'm really serious. Why don't you visit and, and see what you think of the worship and the teaching and how, you know, uh, do you meet some people here that are nice to you and vice versa before you jump in? And yeah. I think I, discourage them. <laughs> I, I think you're smart. You, you would not propose on a first date. So. Well, actually I did. I told my wife I was going to marry her <laughs> and it worked. Well, let's land this plane. You've got a group of people. You've, you talked about your book. You've gone through the effort of writing the six ways to grow your faith into a, a growing, maturing, great faith, as you say. What's the bottom line here, Mike? How do, how do we get started? And, and then how do I know that I'm growing. Yeah. Yeah. Fair questions. A couple really quick things, I think, to answer those questions. Number one, the parable can be super overwhelming, yes. right? You think of, oh, well, I shouldn't be proud, and then I'm going to suffer for the word, and I know I shouldn't be like Martha and worried and so busy, 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 and I'm, well, do I need to stop reading the news or cancel Netflix? or, And just like a garden, you know, I wouldn't sugarcoat it. I would say, yeah, actually growing a garden is kind of hard. Having mature faith is no joke, and I'm pretty sure that Jesus was upfront about that. It's not a given, and it's not an easy task. There's thorns that you're going to have to pull out, and thorns are very thorny. So I don't want to lie to you and say spiritual growth will not be painful. But what gives me so much hope, I didn't catch this before I studied the parable, is that Jesus chose a title for this parable that you might not expect. You know, you read it, and you say, well, this, this is probably should be called the parable of the soils right? You got the hard path, you got the rocky soil, you got the cluttered soil, you got the good soil. Um, he doesn't call it that. Or maybe you think this should be the parable of the seeds. Some seeds falls in good places, some seed doesn't, some seed makes it, some, you know, whatever. But Jesus doesn't call it that. He himself gives it the title. I'm, I'm trying to think this might be one of the only parables that he himself names. And he says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. And that was a light bulb for me to think, wait, the so wait, Jesus, <laughs> I know you're God, but the sower isn't the main character of this story. I mean, just by word counts. I mean, he sowed the seed in the beginning and then he's kind of, he's not mentioned again. He's not the star of this. And yet Jesus thinks differently. And to me, that was like this little wink 
Like, okay, just when you think that you're trying to fix this by yourself, just when you think that you got to follow these six steps and overcome these six threats so that you single-handedly can have great faith. No, 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 no. Like, let's not forget 1 Corinthians 3, God is the one who makes things grow. God is the one who opens your eyes to see his goodness so you're humbled before him. His kindness leads you to repentance. God's the one that makes you believe he's better than everything our friends and family could offer. God is the one who helps us not to worry, right? Because he's a heavenly father who knows what we need. He's the true treasure, so we're not deceived by wealth. He's the actual desire of our heart, not other things. He's worth waiting for, Psalm 27, 14. That was such good news to me, like looking at the broader scope of scriptures and just remembering, yep, there's some work for me to do in my life as a Christian, but man, there is a great gardener who cares about my faith a million times more than I do. And he's forgiving and he's patient and he's merciful and he's saving. And man, his, his grace and his spirit can do things in me that I just, I couldn't hope to accomplish on my own. So I love the title, man. That's just, I can't prove that Jesus winked at the disciples when he said it, but I, I'm, I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> Sanctified imagination. Yeah. And I, I love, I love, love, love that answer. I want to, I want to push you just one more time though. How do I know that I'm growing and maturing, Mike? Mm. Yeah. I don't think you always do. I tell the story in the book, actually. I set a goal. Uh, I think it was a New Year's resolution. Like, I want to be up early. I, I want to stop hitting the snooze bar. I want to be up at six o'clock so I can get a good devotion and spend time with my family instead of just like groggily waving at them when they go to school. I sit down to write this book, and for some reason, I stumbled across that goal, and I thought, I totally forgot about that. Like, I had made some changes. I had grown according to my goals, but it was like having a kid that you see every day and she's grown a couple inches, but you haven't noticed it. And then it takes someone who hasn't seen her in a while who says, whoa, you're getting big. When did that happen? So, you know, spiritual growth is the right goal for us, but we are not the best judges of our own spiritual growth. In fact, as you know, sometimes when you're growing spiritually, you feel like a worse Christian. You're... (laughs) You're more aware of the holiness that, of that God. That was going to be so, my answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it was Alexander White said, the closer to Christ you, uh, uh, it was a rhyme, the closer to Christ you live, the more of your sin you see or something like mm. that. And yes. that's just the haunting thing to me is I, I think how, I'm sure glad I believe in the doctrine of maternal security. <laughs> the scripture teaches yeah. in terms of salvation because otherwise I'd be Armenian. <laughs> I'd be on a good day, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is maybe the only, not the only, the best way to get there is if there's any way that you can keep, if you journal, if you kind of write down where things are at, sometimes you can look back and say, wow, okay, yeah, I have grown. I don't think like that as often as I used to. I don't react that way like I used to. I, I don't doubt my forgiveness as much as I used to. So sometimes it takes like a, a snapshot of a past version of you as you reflect on your own life to kind of see that, that growth and that difference. Thank you. Cause you affirm that's the way I look at it. <laughs> but you know, you know how you find authors that agree with you and you go, yeah, that's a great book. Uh, yeah. I've said for decades, I, I wrote this prayer called a non anxious presence because anxiety just plagued me. Mike for years, wake up at two in the morning, Stomach would go into a knot about, you know, the to-do list, things on my sermon preparation. I just live with this knot. And I wrote this prayer called a non-anxious presence. And I spent a lot of time crafting it. And I didn't 
write it so that I say it enough where it became true. But the last couple of lines were, this is some, a work only God can do in my life. And if you, quote, answer this prayer, only you and I will know it. And I was able to look back and go, you know, I'm not anxious right now. Mm -hmm. I'm in this meeting with people that are pooling their ignorance that I really don't want to be here. I don't even like that person, Jesus. I'm sorry to say that. But you know what? I'm not worked up about it. Mm -hmm. And I can take a breath. And I don't think that's just getting older. I think that's, you know, God working through his word and his spirit and his people to help me grow. And I think those are important benchmarks that if I, you know, I mean, a, a person that's, you know, a very common issue today, pornography is controlling their life. When pornography is not controlling your life as much when you feel guilt and shame and you're able to say, when do I get into porn? Why? Those are progressive moments where, sure, I wish you could tell a person, don't look at it anymore, but it's a pull. And so, well, you know, I didn't look at porn all this week. Praise God. There's some change happening there. And I'm not a behavior yes. modification guy, but behavior does tell me something. When I'm behaving differently, right, the Spirit, God's Word, God's Spirit are working in my life. So that doesn't pull at me like it used to. We've been talking to Michael Novotny pastor of The Core in downtown Appleton, beautiful Wisconsin. And you can find out a lot more about him in the show notes. And you, as always, just search his name in any browser of your choice, and you'll find his, all of his books he's written. And you can go watch him online. There's a bunch of places you can hear him teach. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast, Mike. Thank you for your time and your ministry and blessings on uh, the days ahead, friend. Thanks for having me, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.